Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Please take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark. Mark 14, 1. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that we may eat it? Verse 16, so the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had never been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Sometimes the day of a person's death is a fitting tribute to their mission in life. For a couple of examples, Thomas Jefferson, the chief author of the Declaration of Independence, third president of the United States, died on guess what day? 
July 4th, the day we celebrate the birth of our nation, Independence Day. John Adams, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, vice president under George Washington and second president of the United States himself, died only five hours after Thomas Jefferson on guess what day? Yes, July 4th. Five years later, James Monroe, fifth president of the United States and a hero of the Revolutionary War, died on precisely what day? July 4th. So many deaths of presidents on July 4th in those early years that the newspapers quit referring to July 4th as Independence Day and began to refer to it as Presidential Death Day. As a matter of fact, to this very day, it is statistically more probable that a president of the United States would die on July 4th than any other day of the year. After the death of Jefferson and Adams, Congressman Daniel Webster referred to the timing of the death of these men as, quote, a gift of divine providence. He was arguing that God had ordained the day of their death to make it a fitting tribute to their patriotism and to their contribution to the independence of this infant nation. He may well have been right. I'm certain that God ordained the day of their death, and he may well have done so for that very purpose. I am much, much more confident that God ordained the day of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the day of his death, Nisan 14, on the traditional Jewish calendar was a fitting tribute to his life mission and the reason for which he died. We'll see that as we unpack four truths here in this section of the Gospel of Mark. First of all, Mark tells us in verses 1 through 2 of Mark 14 that God ordained Jesus' death and no power on earth can change his plan. As this chapter opens up, the chief priests and scribes are hatching their sinister plot to arrest Jesus and put him to death. And they determined that they cannot, they must not arrest the Lord Jesus during the Passover or the festival of unleavened bread. Why? Well, they had witnessed the triumphal entry. They had observed throngs of Galilean pilgrims who had flooded the streets of the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, hail Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And they knew if they arrested Jesus, and especially if they put him to death during the Passover feast, that the temple would be stormed and that they might well be ripped to pieces by the angry mob. So even though they were growing impatient, even though they wanted Jesus out of the way as soon as possible, they knew that they had to bide their time and be patient, that they could not arrest Jesus until the Galilean pilgrims had left Judea after the Passover feast was concluded. No arrest during Passover, they agreed, any time but then. 
This, of course, is an example of Mark and irony because we will soon discover that the very time Jesus was arrested and crucified was the precise time the Jewish leaders sought to avoid at all costs. What is Mark teaching us? He is showing us that the events that are unfolding are ordained by a sovereign God, and no power on earth can thwart his plan. We will soon see that God ordained that Jesus should die on Passover in order to reveal the theological significance of his death. God's sovereignty in these events is emphasized by Christ himself in Mark 14, 21, when he says, for the Son of Man will go just as it was written about him. In other words, Scripture will not be broken. Every detail of the words of the ancient prophets about the death of the Messiah would be unfailingly fulfilled. And so, the chief priest the scribes can plot and strategize and scheme and whispers in back rooms all they want. But Jesus will die exactly how God wants and when God wants and not a moment sooner or later. Mark wants us to know that God wrote the script for this scene in salvation history and no clever human scheme can alter it. Second, Mark 14, 3 through 9 shows us that God pictured Jesus' impending death for those who ignored Jesus' prophecies. The next scene in Mark 14 is what we refer to as the anointing at Bethany. And I will confess to you, it was very tempting to me to hone in on this text and focus on this devoted woman and her act of sacrifice. It was very tempting to talk about her eagerness to make extravagant sacrifice for her Lord, about how we, like she, can expect to endure unfair criticism for our devotion to the Lord, and how we, like her, should leave a legacy that glorifies and honors Jesus Christ. But as tempting as that is, I will refrain because of the purpose Mark has in giving us this account. I don't think Mark wants us to focus on this woman. I think he wants us to focus on Christ. We should know that from Mark 1.1, right? He entitled this book, The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. This gospel is Christocentric. It is all about the Lord. And although Mark does quote the words of Jesus, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. Although he makes it clear that this woman's act of devotion should be remembered, strikingly, he doesn't even tell us her name. Now, we know from John chapter 12 that this woman is Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, evidently the daughter of Simon, the former leper, whom apparently Jesus had healed of his leprosy, who is hosting this event here in Mark chapter 14. But Mark tells us none of that 
We don't even know her identity. Is Mark unaware of it? Has Mark forgotten it? Absolutely not. He simply wants our focus not to be this woman, but the Lord Jesus. He wants to remind us that the most important lesson to be learned from this account is what it tells us about our Lord. Now, we don't know for certain what compelled this woman to make her extravagant sacrifice to pour this expensive perfume over the head of the Lord Jesus. Some people think that she's attempting to anoint Jesus as the Messianic King, like the Old Testament prophets anointed the kings of Israel. I don't think so. Uh, there's nothing here to indicate that she is a prophet. Uh, Jesus in this pericope is not referred to as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And the verb that Mark uses to describe the pouring of the perfume isn't the expected crino, which means to anoint. No, something else is going on here. I think that the Lord Jesus himself announces the intention when he says in verse 8, she anointed my body in advance for burial. Jesus isn't saying that her effort has greater significance than she herself knows. And when he says, she is anointing my body in advance for a burial, he's saying, she understands that I'm about to die and she is making preparations for my death. You see, three times already in the Gospel of Mark, the Lord Jesus has predicted his death. He has explained that he is going to be arrested that he's going to be handed by the Jewish leaders over to the Gentiles, that he will be mocked, he will be spit upon, he will be flogged, and he will be killed. And although this woman may not have been present on any of uh, these instances, she has heard about Jesus' prophecies, and unlike many others, she understands and she believes. And she knows that in first century Jerusalem, when a criminal was condemned to death, he had to be buried under Jewish law, but he could not be given an honorable burial. The Jewish law said that when a criminal had been executed, that the family couldn't wash the corpse before burial, couldn't perfume the corpse to mask the odors of decomposition. As a matter of fact, the family couldn't even openly mourn the death of the condemned criminal. Sanhedrin Tractate of the Mishnah said that they had to make mourning only secretly in their hearts. And so this woman knows well that because Jesus is condemned to death, there's a good likelihood that the family and friends will have no opportunity to give him an honorable burial. His corpse is expected to just be thrown into the tomb of condemned criminals, not the family tomb where an honorable burial would have taken place. And since she believes that she will have no opportunity to wash the corpse, to perfume the corpse, as was Jewish tradition in an honorable burial, she does what she can now. 
She prepares the corpse for burial even before Jesus' death. And the sight and the smell of this woman perfuming the body of Jesus like a loving family member perfumed a corpse in preparation for burial was a jarring reminder to everyone present that Jesus was about to die. I believe that her action had its intended effect. If you trace the disciples' reaction to Jesus' predictions about his death up to this point, you'll find that they just didn't get it. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus foretells his death and Simon Peter rebukes him. Mark chapter 9, Jesus foretells his death and then Mark adds, they did not understand his statement and they were afraid to ask him about it. Mark chapter 10, Jesus predicts his death and the disciples respond by abruptly changing the subject to the topic of who's going to have the best seat in the house when the kingdom arrives. Their responses to Jesus' predictions of his death were callous, dense, arrogant, selfish, but after the anointing at Bethany, when Jesus brings up his death again in 1421, the disciples now respond very, very differently. Verse 19, they begin to be distressed. It finally dawns on their minds that Jesus really is about to die, and one of them will betray him. What caused the difference? Why do they now get what they didn't get before? I'm convinced it's because the anointing at Bethany graphically depicted Jesus' own prophecy of his impending fate. Her act was the picture that paints a thousand words. God used her act of devotion to show the disciples that Jesus is about to die just as he foretold. And third, in Mark 14, 12, and 20 through 26, Mark shows us that God orchestrated Jesus' death to portray him as the true Passover sacrifice. Jesus distributes the bread of the Passover meal, the unleavened bread, to his disciples and says, Take it, this is my body. Jesus is depicting his death on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. The gospel parallels make that abundantly clear. But not just any sacrifice. Although there's a rich Old Testament background to Jesus' statement here, Jesus is showing that his death is to be understood as the death of the true Passover lamb. After all, when does Jesus make this statement? during the celebration of a Passover meal. And during the Passover meal, the Jews ate a piece of roasted lamb in commemoration of the sacrifice of the Passover lambs at the beginning of the Exodus. You'll recall that the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and God had sent 10 plagues against the Egyptians to compel Pharaoh to let the people go. And the tenth climactic plague was the horrifying death of the firstborn. The destroyer went through the land of Egypt, and as he came to each house, 
he struck dead the firstborn of every human being and every animal in the land. But God had instructed the Hebrews to slaughter a lamb, to paint its blood on the frame of the door to their homes. And as the destroyer approached that home and saw the sacrificial blood, he would pass over that household, restraining his wrath, refusing to strike them with destruction. The Passover commemorated the passing over that the Hebrew people enjoyed because of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And Jesus wants us to understand that he is the new, true, efficacious Passover lamb. It is through his applied blood that the destruction and wrath of God will pass over us and we will escape the judgment of sin that we each rightly deserve. Now, the Gospel of John clearly highlights this significance. We know from John 13, 1, 18, 28, 19, 14, that the Jewish leaders had still not eaten their Passover meal at the time of Jesus' trial and consequently at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. John indicates that Jesus will die mid-afternoon on Nisan 14, which is the precise moment that the Passover lambs were being sacrificed in the temple. Just to make sure that we understand this, John gives us John 19, 36. And he tells us that when Jesus died, not a single one of his bones was broken. Ordinarily in crucifixion, those who supervised the torture would take a huge mallet called the crucifragum and they would smash and shatter the shin bones of the crucified victim. And with his legs broken in two, he could no longer lift himself up on the cross to inhale and lower himself down to exhale. He would quickly suffocate to death because of his broken legs. And when the Roman soldiers came to break the legs of the Lord Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They confirmed that with the lance thrust, and consequently they tossed the crucifragum aside, and Jesus' bones were not shattered. And John tells us that this fulfilled the Scripture which taught not one of his bones will be broken. These words are a reference to Exodus 12, 46 and Numbers 9 and 12, which say of the Passover lamb, it must be eaten inside one house, take none of the meat outside of the house, you shall not break a single one of its bones. John wants us to understand that in his crucifixion, Jesus was treated like the Passover lamb was to be treated because he is the new, true Passover lamb. So John makes it clear that the last supper that Jesus shared with his disciples was eaten on the night of Nisan 14, a full 24 hours before Jews normally ate the Passover meal. Now, it's normally assumed that Mark has a different chronology. In fact, a contradictory chronology. I'm convinced that's wrong. 
that the chronology of Mark and the chronology of John are perfectly compatible. Yes, Mark 14, 12 does say that the Last Supper occurred on the day that the Passover lamb was sacrificed. But what we sometimes forget is the first century Jewish day didn't go from midnight to midnight. It went from sundown to sundown. Since the Passover meal was typically eaten very late at night, close to midnight, we have plenty of time for the disciples to share the Last Supper with Jesus 15 or 16 hours before his crucifixion at the time the Passover lambs are typically sacrificed. This, by the way, is confirmed by good historical evidence. The Babylonian Talmud says that Jesus was crucified on the eve of Passover, that is, the day before the Passover meal was eaten. An early Christian document called the Akmim Fragment also says that Jesus died the day before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would be Nisan 14, the day that preceded the evening when the Passover meal was eaten. Here's my point. The Passover meal that Jesus shares with his disciples in Mark 14 is 24 hours earlier than everyone else is celebrating it. No Passover lambs have been sacrificed, so it is a Passover meal, apparently at first, without a Passover lamb. I suspect that the disciples are, are looking across the table and, and saying, well, something's missing here. We've got the bitter herbs. We've got the unleavened bread. We've got the wine, but where is the lamb? Reminds me of the words of Isaac as he climbs Mount Moriah with his father Abraham, and he says, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? And Abraham responds, God will provide the lamb. Where is the lamb? Jesus explains, take it, this is my body. Rather than eating the flesh of the roasted Passover lamb, Jesus offers them a piece of bread and says that represents his flesh, that represents his body, and the message is clear he is the true Passover lamb. It is through his sacrificial death that the wrath and destruction of God passes over us. For through him we are forgiven. Through him the wrath of God is appeased. The Apostle Paul understood this. That's why he writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. By presenting his own death as the death of the Passover lamb, Jesus is showing us that his death causes the wrath and destruction we deserve to pass us by. We escape the punishment that our sins deserve because of Jesus' sacrificial death. That's why Jesus must die on Nisan 14. And fourth, Mark 14, 24 shows us that God accepted Jesus' death as the sacrifice that enacts the new covenant. 
as Jesus shares the cup of the Passover with his disciples, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And with those words, Jesus is betraying, portraying his death as a covenant enacting sacrifice. And we all know what a covenant is. It is an agreement that forms the terms of a relationship between two parties. And biblical covenants lay down the terms of God's relationship with his people, uh, typically filled with precious and powerful promises. And in the Old Testament, covenants were enacted with acts of sacrifice. We see that in the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 15, as that covenant with the patriarch is made, an act of sacrifice must be performed. And five animals, a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a pigeon, and a turtle dove are all sacrificed. That enacts and seals the covenant. We see a similar thing in Exodus 24 in the giving of the Mosaic covenant. God commanded Moses to slaughter oxen and then to take half of their blood and sprinkle it on the base of the altar and the other half of their blood and sprinkle it on the people. And as he does, he shouts, Behold the blood of the covenant. With this act of sacrifice, God's covenant with his people is initiated. It is enacted. It is brought into force. And when Jesus takes that symbol of his blood and says, Behold the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he is describing his death on the cross as a sacrifice that enacts a covenant. Luke's gospel makes it clear that this is the new covenant. The covenant often spoken of by the prophets in key texts like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Jeremiah said, God's going to make a new covenant with his people, and it's not going to be like that old covenant. What's wrong with the old covenant? It's a covenant they broke, even though I love them like a husband loves his wife. Why did they break the covenant? Because that old covenant, the law, told them what to do, but it didn't give them the power to do it. It left them in their corruption and in their depravity so that the law was nothing more than an external standard that they struggled vainly to attain. But God said through the prophet, I'll make a new covenant with my people. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. God's people would begin to think differently, to long for different things. And through this internal transformation of the heart and the mind, they would naturally and spontaneously be compelled to live a life of obedience and righteousness. Ezekiel 36 tells us essentially the same story. In his discussion of the new covenant, God says through the prophet, I am going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit within you, and he will cause you to keep my statutes and fulfill my ordinances. We're given a new heart, and that heart is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit compels us from within to do what is right, holy, and good. That's why Paul explains in Romans 8, 
There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is the Mosaic law that exacerbates sin and results in the condemnation of death. The law of the spirit of life is the indwelling spirit functioning as our law, compelling us from within to live a life that pleases God. Consequently, Paul concludes in Romans 8, 4, the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. There are several different purposes of the Passover feast in Jesus' day. And yes, one was to remember the death of the Passover lamb that caused God's wrath to pass over his people. But another purpose of Passover was to commemorate the exodus in which God delivered his people from their slavery in Egypt. Jewish law said that on the night of the Passover feast that the leader of the event, typically the father of the family, was to recite the story of the exodus, quote, beginning with the disgrace and ending with the glory. The leader of the Passover meal was to conclude everything by the recitation of the Hallel, Psalm 113 to 118. But this was to be introduced with this statement. The father was to say, we are bound to give thanks, to praise, to glorify, to honor, to exalt, to extol, and to bless him who wrought all these wonders for our fathers and for us. For he brought us from bondage to freedom, from sadness to gladness, from mourning to celebration, from darkness to great light, from slavery to redemption. Jesus, through the new covenant, has begun our spiritual exodus, delivering us not from bondage to some pharaoh in Egypt, but delivering us from our slavery to sin and death and the law. His righteous standards are inscribed on our hearts. His holy character is imposed upon us by the indwelling spirit so that we are set free to live life a new and different way. You see, Jesus' words are showing us that the new covenant is enacted, activated, brought into force through his sacrificial death. And that this new covenant will lead us to be transformed from the inside out so that we may live lives that are pleasing to God. The point is, Jesus is our Passover sacrifice that causes God's wrath to pass over us. He is our Passover lamb, but he is also the bull that was sacrificed to enact a new covenant so that we can be forever changed, so that we can have lives that are new, that are characterized by good works, so that we can be different people. 
this combination of Jesus as the Passover sacrifice and the covenant enacting sacrifice shows us that the salvation he offers us is complete. He not only rescues us from the penalty of sin, he rescues us from the power of sin. He not only rescues us from the sentence of sin, he rescues us from our very slavery to sin. He is both our Passover and our exodus. Sometimes the date of a person's death is a fitting tribute to their mission and purpose in life. I think what was true of Jefferson, Adams, Monroe has probably been true of others. My own father died on October the 31st. The anniversary of the date that Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, sparking the Protestant Reformation, the recovery of the gospel of grace. When I preached his funeral, I reminded the people who were attending that as we marked that day on our calendars year after year after year, that we could remember the convictions of my father, a man who believed steadfastly that his only hope in death was by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that is my only hope in death. That is your only hope in death. But if the death of men like these presidents If the death of men like my father and the timing of that death has some special significance for us, how much more does the timing of the death of our Lord Jesus? For the day of his death was ordained by God from eternity past, and there was no power on earth that could thwart it. His death that had been predicted by him was pictured by a faithful saint. And Jesus' own words show us that because of his death, God's wrath passes over all who repent and believe in Jesus as God's Savior and King, and that because of his death, the new covenant has been initiated so that we are new creatures in Christ who may live for his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray like those did centuries before. And we say, we give you thanks, we praise you, we glorify you, we honor you, exalt you, extol you, and bless you for the wonders you have performed for us. For through Christ, you brought us from bondage to freedom, from sadness to gladness, from mourning to to celebration, from darkness to great light, from slavery to redemption. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.